Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with the second section of post-scarcity anarchism called Listen Marxists and purportedly tries to address Marxist concerns or hesitations about anarchism. Let's continue and see if they address some of my lingering questions. The Myth of the Proletariat Let us cast aside all the ideological debris of the past and cut to the theoretical roots of the problem. For our age, Marx's greatest contribution to revolutionary thought is his dialectic of social development. Marx laid bare the great movement from primitive communism through private property to communism in its highest form, a communal society resting on a liberatory technology. In this movement, according to Marx, man passes on from the domination of man by nature to the domination of man by man, and finally to the domination of nature by man. Footnote 42. And from social domination of such. Within this larger dialectic, Marx examines the dialectic of capitalism itself, a social system which constitutes the last historical stage in the domination of man by man. Here, Marx makes not only profound contributions to contemporary revolutionary thought, particularly in his brilliant analysis of the commodity relationship, but also exhibits those limitations of time and place that play so confining a role in our own time. The most serious of these limitations emerges from Marx's attempt to explain the transition from capitalism to socialism, from a class society to a classless society. It is vitally important to emphasize that this explanation was reasoned out almost entirely by analogy with the transition of feudalism to capitalism that is, from one class society to another class society, from one system of property to another. Accordingly, Marx points out that just as the bourgeoisie developed within feudalism as a result of the split between town and country, more precisely between crafts and agriculture, so the modern proletariat developed within capitalism as a result of the advance of industrial technology. Both classes, we are told, develop social interests of their own, indeed revolutionary social interests that throw them against the old society in which they were spawned. If the bourgeoisie gained control over economic life long before it overthrew feudal society, the proletariat, in turn, gains its own revolutionary power by the fact that it is disciplined, united, organized by the factory system. Footnote 43. In both cases, the development of the productive forces becomes incompatible with the traditional system of social relations. Quote, the integument is burst asunder. End quote. The old society is replaced by the new. The critical question we face is this. Can we explain the transition from a class society to a classless society by means of the same dialectic that accounts for the transition of one class society to another? This is not a textbook problem that involves the judging of logical abstractions, but a very real and concrete issue for our time. There are profound differences between the development of the bourgeoisie under feudalism and the development of the proletariat under capitalism, which Marx either failed to anticipate 
or never faced clearly. The bourgeoisie controlled economic life long before it took state power. It had become the dominant class materially, culturally, and ideologically before it asserted its dominance politically. The proletariat does not control economic life. Despite its indispensable role in the industrial process, the industrial working class is not even a majority of the population, and its strategic economic position is being eroded by cybernation and other technological advances. Footnote 44. Hence, it requires an act of high consciousness for the proletariat to use its power to achieve a social revolution. Until now, the achievement of this consciousness has been blocked by the fact that the factory milieu is one of the most well-entrenched arenas of the work ethic, of hierarchical systems of management, of obedience to leaders, and in recent times of production committed to superfluous commodities and armaments. The factory serves not only to discipline, unite, and organize the workers, but also to do so in a thoroughly bourgeois fashion. In the factory, capitalist production not only renews the social relations of capitalism with each working day, as Marx observed, but it also renews the psyche, values, and ideologies of capitalism. Marx sensed this fact sufficiently to look for reasons more compelling than the mere fact of exploitation or conflicts over wages and hours to propel the proletariat into revolutionary action. In his general theory of capitalist accumulation, he tried to delineate the harsh, objective laws that forced the proletariat to assume a revolutionary role. Accordingly, he developed his famous theory of immiseration. Competition between capitalists compels them to undercut each other's prices, which in turn leads to a continual reduction of wages and the absolute impoverishment of the workers. The proletariat is compelled to revolt because with the process of competition and the centralization of capital, there, quote, grows the mass of misery, oppression, slavery, degradation, end quote, footnote 45. But capitalism has not stood still since Marx's day. Writing in the middle years of the 19th century, Marx could not be expected to grasp the full consequences of his insights into the centralization of capital and the development of technology. He could not be expected to foresee that capitalism would develop not only from mercantilism into the dominant industrial form of his day, from state-aided trading monopolies into highly competitive industrial units, but further, that with the centralization of capital, capitalism returns to its mercantilist origins on a higher level of development and reassumes the state-aided monopolistic form. The economy tends to merge with the state, and capitalism begins to plan its development instead of leaving it exclusively to the interplay of competition and market forces. To be sure, the system does not abolish the traditional class struggle, but manages to contain it using its immense technological resources to assimilate the most strategic sections of the working class. Thus, the full thrust of the immiseration theory is blunted, and in the United States, the traditional class struggle fails to develop into the class war. It becomes entirely within bourgeois dimensions. Marxism, in fact, becomes ideology. 
It is assimilated by the most advanced forms of state capitalist movement, notably Russia. By an incredible irony of history, Marxian socialism turns out to be in large part the very state capitalism that Marx failed to anticipate in the dialectic of capitalism. Footnote 46. The proletariat, instead of developing into a revolutionary class within the womb of capitalism, turns out to be an organ within the body of bourgeois society. The question we must ask at this late date in history is whether a social revolution that seeks to achieve a classless society can emerge from a conflict between traditional classes in a class society, or whether such a social revolution can only emerge from the decomposition of the traditional classes, indeed from the emergence of an entirely new class, whose very essence is that it is a non-class, a growing stratum of revolutionaries. In trying to answer this question, we can learn more by returning to the broader dialectic which Marx developed for human society as a whole than from the model he borrowed from the passage of feudal into capitalist society. Just as primitive kinship clans began to differentiate into classes, so in our own day there is a tendency for classes to decompose into entirely new subcultures, which bear a resemblance to non-capitalist forms of relationships. These are not strictly economic groups anymore. In fact, they reflect the tendency of the social development to transcend the economic categories of scarcity society. They constitute, in effect, a crude, ambiguous, cultural preformation of the movement of scarcity into post-scarcity society. The process of class decomposition must be understood in all its dimensions. The word process must be emphasized here. The traditional classes do not disappear, nor for that matter does class struggle. Only a social revolution could remove the prevailing class structure and the conflict it engenders. The point is the traditional class struggle ceases to have revolutionary implications. It reveals itself as the physiology of the prevailing society, not as the labor pains of birth. In fact, the traditional class struggle stabilizes capitalist society by correcting its abuses in wages, hours, inflation, employment, etc. The unions in capitalist society constitute themselves into a counter-monopoly to the industrial monopolies and are incorporated into the neo-mercantile stratified economy as an estate. Within this estate, there are lesser or greater conflicts, but taken as a whole, the unions strengthen the system and serve to perpetuate it. To reinforce this class structure by babbling about the role of the working class, to reinforce the traditional class struggle by imputing a revolutionary content to it, to infect the new revolutionary movement of our time with workeritis, is reactionary to the core. How often do the Marxian doctrinaires have to be reminded that the history of the class struggle is the history of a disease, of the wounds opened by the famous social question, of man's one-sided development in trying to gain control over nature by dominating his fellow man? If the byproduct of this disease has been technological advance, the main products have been repression, a horrible shedding of human blood, and a terrifying distortion of the human psyche. 
as the disease approaches its end, as the wounds begin to heal in their deepest recesses, the process now unfolds toward wholeness. The revolutionary implications of the traditional class struggle lose their meaning as theoretical constructs and as social reality. The process of decomposition embraces not only the traditional class structure, but also the patriarchal family, authoritarian modes of upbringing, the influence of religion, the institutions of the state, and the mores built around toil, renunciation, guilt, and repressed sexuality. The process of disintegration, in short, now becomes generalized and cuts across virtually all the traditional classes, values, and institutions. It creates entirely new issues, modes of struggle, and forms of organization, and calls for an entirely new approach to theory and praxis. What does this mean concretely? Let us contrast two approaches, the Marxian and the revolutionary. The Marxian doctrinaire would have us approach the worker, or better, enter the factory, and proselytize him in preference to anyone else. The purpose? To make the worker class conscious. To cite the most Neanderthal examples from the old left, one cuts one's hair, grooms oneself in conventional sports clothing, abandons pot for cigarettes and beer, dances conventionally, affects rough mannerisms, and develops a humorless, deadpan, and pompous mien. Footnote 47. One becomes, in short, what the worker is at his most caricaturized worst. Not a petty bourgeois degenerate, to be sure, but a bourgeois degenerate. One becomes an imitation of the worker insofar as the worker is an imitation of his masters. Beneath the metamorphosis of the student into the worker lies a vicious cynicism. One tries to use the discipline inculcated by the factory milieu to discipline the worker to the party milieu. One tries to use the worker's respect for the industrial hierarchy to wed to worker to the party hierarchy. This disgusting process, which, if successful, could lead only to the substitution of one hierarchy for another, is achieved by pretending to be concerned with the worker's economic day-to-day -day demands. Even Marxian theory is degraded to accord with this debased image of the worker. See almost any copy of Challenge, the National Enquirer of the Left. Nothing bores the worker more than this kind of literature. In the end, the worker is shrewd enough to know that he will get better results in the day-to-day -day class struggle through his union bureaucracy than through a Marxian party bureaucracy. The 40s revealed this so dramatically that within a year or two, with hardly any protest from the rank and file, unions succeeded in kicking out, by the thousands, Marxians who had done spade work in the labour movement for more than a decade, even rising to the top leadership of the old CIO internationals. The worker becomes a revolutionary not by becoming more of a worker, but by undoing his workerness. And in this, he is not alone. The same applies to the farmer, the student, the clerk, the soldier, the bureaucrat, the professional, and the Marxist. The worker is no less a bourgeois than the farmer, student, clerk, soldier, bureaucrat, professional, and Marxist. His workerness is the disease he is suffering from, the social affliction telescoped to individual dimensions. Lenin understood this in What is to be done, 
but he smuggled in the old hierarchy under a red flag and some revolutionary verbiage. The worker begins to become a revolutionary when he undoes his workerness, when he comes to detest his class status here and now, when he begins to shed exactly those features which the Marxists most prize in him, his work ethic, his character structure derived from industrial discipline, his respect for hierarchy, his obedience to leaders, his consumerism, his vestiges of puritanism. In this sense, the worker becomes a revolutionary to the degree that he sheds his class status and achieves an unclass consciousness. He degenerates, and he degenerates magnificently. What he is shedding are precisely those class shackles that bind him to all systems of domination. He abandons those class interests that enslave him to consumerism, suburbia, and a bookkeeping conception of life. Footnote 48. The most promising development in the factories today is the emergence of young workers who smoke pot, fuck off on their jobs, drift into and out of factories, grow long or longish hair, demand more leisure time rather than more pay, steal, harass all authority figures, go on wildcats, and turn on their fellow workers. Even more promising is the emergence of this human type in trade schools and high schools, the reservoir of the industrial working class to come. To the degree that workers, vocational students, and high school students link their lifestyles to various aspects of the anarchic youth culture, to that degree will the proletariat be transformed from a force for the conservation of the established order into a force for revolution. A qualitatively new situation emerges when man is faced with a transformation from a repressive class society based on material scarcity into a liberatory classless society based on material abundance. From the decomposing traditional class structure, a new human type is created in ever-increasing numbers. This revolutionary begins to challenge not only the economic and political premises of hierarchical society, but hierarchy as such. He not only raises the need for social revolution, but also tries to live in a revolutionary manner, to the degree that this is possible in the existing society. Footnote 49. He not only attacks the forms created by the legacy of domination, but also improvises new forms of liberation, which take their poetry from the future. This preparation for the future this experimentation with liberatory post-scarcity forms of social relations may be illusory if the future involves a substitution of one class society by another. It is indispensable, however, if the future involves a classless society built on the ruins of a class society. What then will be the agent of revolutionary change? It will be literally the great majority of society, drawn from all the different traditional classes and fused into a common revolutionary force by the decomposition of the institutions, social forms, values, and lifestyles of the prevailing class structure. Typically, its most advanced elements are the youth, a generation that has known no chronic economic crisis and that is becoming less and less oriented toward the myth of material scarcity so widespread among the generation of the 30s. If it is true that a social revolution cannot be achieved without the active or passive support of the workers, 
it is no less true that it cannot be achieved without the active or passive support of the farmers, technicians, and professionals. Above all, a social revolution cannot be achieved without the support of the youth, from which the ruling class recruits its armed forces. If the ruling class retains its armed might, the revolution is lost no matter how many workers rally to its support. This has been vividly demonstrated not only by Spain in the 30s, but by Hungary in the 50s and Czechoslovakia in the 60s. The revolution of today, by its very nature, indeed by its pursuit of wholeness, wins not only the soldier and the worker, but the very generation from which soldiers, workers, technicians, farmers, scientists, professionals, and even bureaucrats have been recruited. Discarding the tactical handbooks of the past, the revolution of the future follows the path of least resistance, eating its way into the most susceptible areas of the population irrespective of their class position. It is nourished by all the contradictions in bourgeois society, not simply by the contradictions of the 1860s and 1917. Hence, it attracts all those who feel the burdens of exploitation, poverty, racism, imperialism, and, yes, those whose lives are frustrated by consumerism, suburbia, the mass media, the family, school, the supermarket, and the prevailing system of repressed sexuality. Here, the form of the revolution becomes as total as its content, classless, propertyless, hierarchyless, and wholly liberating. To barge into this revolutionary development with the worn recipes of Marxism, to babble about a class line and the role of the working class, amounts to a subversion of the present and the future by the past. To elaborate this deadening ideology by babbling about cadres, a vanguard party, democratic centralism, and the proletarian dictatorship is sheer counter-revolution. It is to this matter of the organizational question, the vital contribution of Leninism to Marxism, that we must now direct some attention. And that is going to do it for this week. Many thoughts still bubbling on this. <laughs> this section that is still founded on the assumption that there would not be further economic crises. But I have thoughts on that we will get to as we see how this argument develops. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also support them on patreon.com slash abnormalmapping and get lots of bonus shows for your money there too. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading. <laughs>